Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. This is truly an exciting episode. I love talking to journalists, and joining me is Alex Harris, the climate change reporter for the Miami Herald. In fact, the only reporter dedicated completely to the topic of climate change in the entire Southeast. We learn what it's like covering local adaptation issues, everything from Miami considering building a 20-foot wall around the city to the insidious problems of dealing with septic tanks and the threat of hurricane flooding and sea level rise. Learn how the region keeps punting on this important issue and why it's so hard to deal with these local infrastructure topics. We talk about a nearly decade-old Rolling Stone article on Miami and climate change that still haunts the minds of local officials. I'm a native Floridian, and I did some of my earliest work in the adaptation space in Florida. It's a beautiful, wild, and confounding place, and you'll hear from Alex what it's like to cover adaptation at the local level. This was a fun and exasperating conversation. I hope you enjoy. Okay, upcoming episodes. I'm working on a two-part series, learning how Nantucket Island in Massachusetts is adapting to climate change. I'm also doing an episode with the conservation group, the Sky Island Alliance, based here in Arizona. We'll learn some of the long-term impacts of climate change on the beautiful and unique Sky Island ecosystem. Yes, some great episodes are on your way. But before we get started, I wanted to tell you about another great sustainability podcast. How do you deal with all the bad news about climate change and humanity's sustainability crisis? Well, you could cry incessantly or pretend there's no problem, but that's not nearly as fun or useful as listening to the Crazy Town podcast. Each episode of Crazy Town challenges the status quo and makes you think differently about how we could live on planet Earth. In Crazy Town, you'll feel like you're hanging out with smart and funny friends, gaining insights and sharing laughs. Follow Crazy Town wherever you get your podcasts. Crazy Town is part of the Post Carbon Institute Podcast Network. The Institute is a nonprofit organization leading the transition to a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable world. To hear a sample directly from the host, stick around until the end of this episode to hear their trailer. Okay, adapters, let's take a journey to Florida and talk local climate adaptation journalism with Alex Harris of the Miami Herald. Hey, adapters, welcome back. Today I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Alex Harris. Alex is the climate change reporter at the Miami Herald newspaper. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Happy to be here. Okay. So we are going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, Florida. And I am a native Floridian. I know all about Florida. So you are a climate change reporter. What does that mean? So I'm the Herald's first climate change reporter, which is still a tough thing to explain to my coworkers who keep introducing me to other people as the environment reporter. We have a very capable and wonderful environmental reporter at the paper, but my beat is separate. It means that I, instead of focusing on the broader questions of like, what's up with wildlife, what's up with people, I'm pretty much primarily hyper-focused on climate change. So for me, that means a lot of adaptation, not much mitigation because Florida, and, and talking about how people are adapting or failing to adapt to these future conditions or a lot of cases, current conditions that we're experiencing down here. It's my understanding that you are the only reporter solely dedicated to the issue of climate change in the entire Southeast. Is that accurate? As far as I'm aware, although there are some wonderful Report for America fellows starting to join uh, some of the papers, I believe in North Carolina, they have a reporter who's trying to focus as much as they can on climate change. But uh, at least when I started three years ago, I had a really hard time finding anybody who covered locally climate change. Tons of national reporters doing great stuff in this space, but from a local, local level, not much out there. Do you speculate on why that is? 
I think people have always seen climate change as the Arctic polar bear issue, right? It's, a, it's an international thing. It's a global thing, which obviously it is. And it's always seemed like somebody else's problem. Like, oh, those poor villages that are going to get flooded. Oh, those poor people experiencing those crazy droughts. But that couldn't happen here. We're fine. It's, it's a, somebody else's problem. And as anyone who listens to your podcast knows, it's absolutely not. It's a very personal local issue for millions and millions of people around the world, including Americans and especially Miamians. We have one of the biggest and most vulnerable urban cities on the coast in the world. We're right up there um, with places in Indonesia, with places all across the world. And that means climate change isn't something you can think about as an issue that affects other people. It's something you have to think about as an issue that affects you personally. And I think newsrooms are starting to grasp that and ask their already stressed out staff to do a little bit more with less and then try to also cover this on top of everything else. But I think even readers are starting to ask for it. That's what happened here. We had a, a lot of reader interest. It, it led to our management saying, you know, I think we should devote a lot more energy and time and attention to this topic. And our readership has really appreciated it. It's a very important topic to lots of people down here in South Florida. Well, you hear that in the adaptation space a bit. All adaptation is local, which I think is true to a, a large extent, maybe not completely. But what's happening, I guess, with local newspapers and local news across the country it just comes at a terrible time for any number of reasons. But just as climate change and adaptation is, is emerging as this huge issue, the newspaper industry is still just reeling from, okay, what, what's going to happen for the future for you guys, right? Yeah, it's not a great time to be in the industry. It's still a fabulous industry to be in, but it is tough financially. I mean, we have hedge funds buying out major chains. There's lots of layoffs. The advertising model has fallen off a cliff. But through it all, we found, like at the Miami Herald and other local papers, if you can provide information that no one can find anywhere else, like here's how climate change affects your day-to-day -day life. Here's how your taxes are going to go up. People will still pay it, pay for that information and they will still click on it and be interested and engage with it. And I think we've really seen climate change coverage as one of the main things that's going to help us carry through and survive this tough period. And I wish that there was this sort of dedication to this topic across the country because, I mean, it's not just Louisiana and Miami. It's a lot of places where, I'm in Arizona, all these places where, where these policies are changing, adaptation is happening or not happening, and that affects your quality of life for the next 30 years. And I think that if people, there was more rigorous journalism locally around this topic, there would probably be more action around it, more people invested in it, more politicians that talk about it, and more solutions. Before we kind of jump into the, the topics that you're covering, because I, I love talking communication and adaptation, but what about just how you got to where you are in your career? I'm sure there's not a lot of climate journalism schools. So <laughs> how did you get to the position where you were hired as a climate change reporter? I mean, I'd love to hear more about your background and maybe some of the work that you're doing before. Yes, I'm in my first few years of the journalism industry still, but I knew I wanted to do something involved with the environment from like a younger age. Uh, my mom's a into landscape contracting, so she's always talked to me about the importance of like, you know, Florida-friendly landscaping, the way we can use natural spaces and natural solutions to solve these kind of flooding and heat problems. And my dad is a civil engineer who was one of the first local businesses, local businessmen in Florida in Orlando to install solar panels on his building and cut his and build an electric car from scratch, which I helped him do in high school, which was wow. really fun. So my family's always been really interested in these solutions. So when I got to college, this was something I knew I wanted to do. And you know what, math and science, not my strong suit, writing, it is. So I figured that this is how climate journalism happens. And you're right, there's really not classes on environmental journalism or climate journalism, um, but I studied journalism and sustainability at the University of Florida. And when I ended up at the Herald right after I graduated, I covered a lot of things, mostly crime, 
sometimes people's pet alligators in their backyards. Um, we see those stories. Was, yep. Oh yeah. This guy liked to eat Oreos. He was a very well-fed gator, but I even covered higher education for, for a moment there before they created this beat, as I said earlier, in relation to our readers asking for more climate change coverage. And so I've been on the beat for about three years and I absolutely love it. It's the thing I want to do. It's the topic I want to write about. And it's the audience I want to write to. So as a reporter, and I, I've never been a reporter like you have, in that you need to develop relationships. You need people that you need to touch base with, be it in government, local government, a nonprofit. And so you have, I'm sure, your network of people that you do your job by being able to tap into this network of people that provide you with information. How has the private industry embraced you? Because you you have to talk to them too. Are they skeptical? Have they been good partners? How does that all work? That's actually a good question. I spent most of my time talking to public officials, and I'd really rather prefer spending my time talking to regular citizens about, you know, what do you think about the seawall ordinance? What do you think about the flooding in your front yard? And I have started talking a lot more to private industries because they are obviously a huge part of the solution here. For instance, I recently got off the phone this week with somebody who is really involved in home elevations and is helping put on workshops in different cities and different counties to talk to local governments about how they can change the policies to make it better and talk to homeowners about how they can afford it or find grants or whatever they need. And I'm really interested in the ways that the private industries can can jump in and be a part of the solution because you can't rely on government to do everything. You can't rely on private citizens to do everything. But I also am not interested in giving people a platform just to think about how to phrase this. I'm not interested in writing about people who are exclusively trying to make a profit and they're out here because they realize this is a hot green topic and it's buzzwords and they want to jump in and talk about these things. I will look at your business holistically and say, okay, you are a, a mega bank that's donating uh, money to help some of these climate solutions down here, but you still bank fossil fuel companies. You are the number one bank for fossil fuel companies, and you're trying to get all this press for donating to local solution efforts down here. Like, that's great. I'm glad you're doing that, but it doesn't greenwash the other work you're doing. So I'm a big fan of what the private industry does, but I will also look at their whole record if I can help it. You know, I struggle with this myself too on the podcast. A lot of people reach out to me about, oh, you should have me on or you should have this person on. And I've really avoided the private sector because I don't want the podcast to be an infomercial for them. Mm -hmm. But I do find myself, they are still a big player on the adaptation side and like finding that sweet spot of like, okay, come on and talk about how you're contributing and how, what, what are your thoughts and all that. And so, it's not easy, but I purposely want a lot of pride. And I'm, I'm missing out on a big part of the story, I think. So it's, yeah, I get where you're coming from. It's, it's not easy. Yeah, they definitely are a huge part. And, and they move faster than bureaucracy. And if they see that their profit margins suggest that it makes more sense for them to, you know, change the way they invest in real estate or build buildings higher or offer mortgages in different places, they're going to make those changes. And sometimes that's for the better of society. Oh, if we don't offer insurance here, that will help people encourage them to move to better places. And yeah, I think you should probably think about talking to more private industries, but it, it's a tough line to walk where you don't want to look like you're cheerleading, but you want to make sure you're capturing the whole conversation. Yeah, the infomercials, my dreaded thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we're going to talk about a couple of the articles that you sent me that just some great stuff happening down in Miami. But I still want to give some more context on how you cover the issue. And maybe you'll do an article about a hurricane, right? Or flooding that's happening in Miami. 
And do you find that you embed the overall topic of climate change in all your articles or do you, is it, does it not make sense? And I guess just where I'm getting at is I want to see that climate change is part of that context and narrative that's saying, well, look, this was worse because of climate change, but do you purposely embed it or do you just leave it out just because it's just completely not relevant? How does that work? Yeah. So I think this, really comes into play for hurricanes. Like when I write about a major rain event that's outside of hurricane season, it's a flash flood. I do write, you know, hey, the, our drainage system can can barely handle a storm that drops seven inches of rain. How can we expect it to handle six feet of sea level rise? Or climate change makes these rain bombs more likely. And here's an expert to talk about it. I'm comfortable doing that. And I write a lot of standalone stories about how hurricanes are impacted by our changing climate and human-caused global warming. But I'm also the chief hurricane reporter for the Herald, which means I will update the stories of every single move of every single tropical storm and and anything out in the Atlantic, which last year was 30 named storms and lots of other things. And it's tough to, in those updates that you do every three or four hours, to make sure there's always a line in there that says, don't forget that climate change impacts storms, because it's really hard to directly connect climate change to a storm as it's happening, that attribution science is tough. Usually you get those studies like a year later that says, you know, actually Hurricane Harvey's rain was made 16 times more likely. Don't quote me on that number. But there have been attribution studies talking about how climate change makes events like these more likely. But what I try to do is include like we call them evergreen videos. So we've got videos explaining. I did an interview with a scientist last year talking about the links between climate change and hurricanes. And so I try to embed that video in every story or have a link to other stories I've written about it. So there's a way that readers can, my audience can find that information. And I'm not hiding it. It's just making it work with my workflow. Um, If you're up till two in the morning updating these stories all night, sometimes it's hard to write the same sentence every single day for six months straight. Don't forget climate change affects hurricanes in X, Y, Z ways. Now, when you're writing Article 2, you use the word adapt and adaptation and resilience quite a bit. And most people in the public, you go out and I'm convinced if you interviewed 100 random people, 98 of them would have no clue what adaptation is, that it's an emerging sector. It's this whole thing. It's part of climate change. Do you find that you repeatedly ex- try to re-explain what adaptation is in the context of a lot of stories you're doing, or do you, do you not? Because you're in a unique position. You're you have more of the general public reading what you do than you listen to my podcast, for example. So, do you feel like you have to keep redefining what adaptation is all about? I redefine what climate change is somewhat regularly. I don't do that because I think my audience is stupid. I think I do it because. I know from the metrics we have, uh, we can see behind the screen that there's people who've never read my stuff that are starting to read it. And I always try to think of how I would explain this to someone if they really never paid attention to climate change before, weren't really completely familiar with the concept. And that's where I think the word resilience, uh, there's been a lot of mission creep with that word. Nobody really knows what it means. You talk about economic resilience, you talk about climate resilience, especially down here um, in Miami-Dade County, the chief resilience officer has told me several times that every single penny in our annual budget is for resilience. No, it's not. Streetlights in poorer parts of town and more cops. That's not climate resilience. That's resilience in a broad Rockefeller sense, but it's not quite resilience. I feel like adaptation does make a lot of sense intuitively to people, though. You say you're adapting to rising tides. You're adapting to more rain. I try to use it. I don't always stop and define it for a full sentence, but I will try to add context clues because I think you're right. If you did stop and interview 100 people, very few of them would know what resilience means or adaptation. And maybe half of them would know what climate change meant, especially to them in their person. 
Right. And here's my request to you in acknowledging that adaptation is this emerging sector, this emerging field. It, you know, it, it's implied if you know how to read your articles, you're like, oh, Adapting, there's a chief resilience officer. But really making it crystal clear that this is a brand new world we're living in and adaptation is this emerging field. So anyway, my, <laughs> my request of the press really kind of re-explaining this over and over again, adaptation is an actual field and it's an, a sector and it's, it's meant to do something. I'll take that to heart. Okay. <laughs> Next article. All right. So one of the articles you shared with me, which you, you, you're a great writer, by the way, I, I really enjoyed oh, reading you. through it, all of it. And let me just read the title. Let's see if the, this hopefully will trigger. Miami sea level rise bill is $4 billion by 2060. It won't keep every neighborhood dry. What was that? Without you know going too lengthy, but what was that article about? So that story was about a long-awaited stormwater master plan that the city of Miami has finally put together. Um, Three or four years ago, they had started to put one together, and it turns out that they were planning their 30-year stormwater master plan without any consideration for sea level rise. So the newly formed city's sea level rise committee banged the drums and was like, no, 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 you have to fix that. So this is the stormwater master plan for the next 30 years to guide Miami into the future and keep them dry. And so now we got our first look at it. It's crazy expensive. And even with the best of your abilities, it became painfully obvious that there were some major patches of the city that hundreds of millions of dollars of engineering investments could not save. Those are clear retreat areas that the city will have to abandon at some point before 2060 or 2070. So when I saw that number, $4 billion in it, to be honest, I thought, wow, that really isn't that expensive. But then I'm reminded how cheap Florida planners can be. I worked in the people want to know I worked for the state of Florida, lived there, worked for nonprofit groups. $4 billion, when you think of tourism and the economic driver that is Miami, is $4 billion really that much money? And it, I guess it is, right? I mean, compared to what, right? Like, that's always the good argument. It's like, it's really expensive. Well, compared to how much it'll cost to do nothing right. and fix it all after something goes wrong. In that sense, it's not a lot of money. You're right. In the sense of economic drivers, what we spend on tourism, what we spend on like licenses for guns or anything in this state, it's not that much money. But if you think about a, a city with a budget of like a billion or $2 billion, pulling that out of your pocket in the next couple of years is going to be tremendous. That's taxes that are going to go up. And people love to focus when, especially people from the North reporters who love to come down to Miami, weirdly always in the winter and write their climate stories about what it's going to look like here and how the city is going to survive. They spend a lot of time on the really wealthy Miami Beach, uh, Brickell, downtown Miami, but there are a lot of very poor people who are barely making ends meet here. And so when you think about expensive, I don't think expensive in terms of the people who are building luxury condos where it's $4 million a condo each in downtown Miami. I'm thinking of somebody who lives in Little Haiti and is barely holding onto their house because of gentrification. That cost, I worry about how unevenly that cost is going to be applied. When Does that make sense if I'm talking about expensive? Not necessarily like that number out of context is not that high, but what it actually means in context of the residents of the city. Okay. And so to your point though, okay, is that expensive in regards to you know the future costs if you do nothing? And how do you bring that? You, you have a unique responsibility. I mean, maybe there are a few other sectors, but there's actually a lot of sophisticated modeling going on saying, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, it's going to cost $25 billion. And there's a lot more of that kind of economic modeling coming out. Do you try to bring that into your articles? And that almost, to me, is like kind of a breaking story. It's like, listen, if they don't spend this $5 billion, it's going to cost the citizens of this city 
$50 billion. And that's just not some pulling out of nowhere. These are those future projections and climate change is all about future projections, which makes your job a lot harder. But do you try to bring that in as really, I guess, creating that more urgency to the story? Yeah. And I think I can always be doing a better job of this. And I'm realizing now I forgot to talk about what I'm about to mention in this piece about the stormwater master plan. But so we have, I don't know if your readers are aware, but the four counties down here in South Florida got together about a decade ago to form the South Florida Climate Compact. Um, So uh, when the state was abandoning their responsibilities to prepare the state for sea level rise and climate change, these four counties got together and started working on policies, coming up with a sea level rise standard and putting out research and using it to inform like how they can govern and how they can you know, prepare for sea level rise. And one of the most recent things they did, which I believe came out last year, early last year, was a report on the business case. It was a, an ROI study, return on investment study for what is it going to cost for these four counties to adapt and how much will it cost if they don't? And it broke it down. And I think Miami-Dade County had the absolute best return on investment. It was like a 10 to 1. And that didn't include everything. That was just some things. It was just seawalls or it was just elevating a few buildings. But there is a tremendous, tremendous financial, there are a tremendous amount of financial reports out there that show adaptation is 100% worth it for both the federal government and whether they have to bail us out after another storm and down to the individual resident, whether you have to go stay at a hotel for a couple months for a couple months if your house is ruined or if you can stay home the whole time. But yeah, the, the numbers are there. The data is there. It's very clear. And I can do a much better job of showing that in my reporting because we've written about it before, but I sometimes forget not everyone reads every single thing. (laughs) And I think it's also good to give people some context. I always forget too, and this probably makes your job harder. You've got the city of Miami, but then you've got Miami-Dade and you know the counties in Florida can be really powerful maybe compared to maybe some other states. And so you've got these overlapping government entities and you got local communities there. And so when we talk about Miami, it's, it's a much more complex thing than that, right? Yeah, it's uh, Miami-Dade is, our, is the biggest county in Florida, the most populous county, I should say. And there are 34 municipalities in it, of which Miami is one. Miami is the biggest in terms of population. But yeah, it's, it's a huge, when I say Miami, most of the time I'm talking about the greater Miami area. And yeah, you'll see Miami, Miami Beach and the county will lead on some of these policies. But you have three dozen other municipalities that don't care at all or don't look into this or and there's only so much power the county actually has over those cities. So it really is complicated getting everyone in the wagon on board, heading the same direction thing that the county is tasked with down here, which can be really complicated. Like I consider Pompano Beach part of Miami. <laughs> it's just <laughs> oh, a have- sprawling mess of commercial area from all the way to right. I mean, that's what's happened there. Yeah, South Florida is definitely its own beast compared to the rest of the state. And yeah, people will say all the way up to Palm Beach County. Oh, Miami. Not the same, right. but I understand yeah, the impulse. Yeah. I, I, I'm from the West Coast of Florida too. So there's just different attitude. And again, some of your stories, when I'm always thinking of like when you're writing a story, you have to wear all these different hats. And it's again, the urgency of an issue, like you're analyzing the the city's plan for flooding or septic inks or whatever. And so much comes down to the science of sea level rise. And as a reporter working for a newspaper, and you've acknowledged this in your articles too, it's, well, I'm starting from a position that this you know, newspaper thinks it's going to be five feet of sea level rise because we've talked to X, Y, and Z scientists, but the city's only thinking of two feet. How do you sort of create a baseline for yourself? Because that must create that context on the questions you want to ask. Are you guys doing enough? How does that work? Right. So that's a great question. And actually one that thankfully, before I even got here, kind of already had an answer. So when I was referencing the South Florida Climate Compact earlier, one of the most important things they've done is they set a local sea level rise standard. 
So as your readers know, or as your audience knows, as you know, the amount, the rate of sea level rise is not the same everywhere. And you know, the West Coast can experience different than the East Coast, Gulf Coast, totally different subsidence, whatever. So every five years, crop of the best scientists in the four counties down here get together and they produce a document that shows here are the four or five curves we think you should be looking at. And here are the two curves that we think should be your range. So I think the no intermediate high is the upper boundary and the no intermediate is the lower boundary. So you get a range of 17 to 21 inches or whatever it is off the top of my head. And all of the local counties down here have agreed to build future buildings to that and accept that as their standard. So when I reference it down here, there kind of already is that easy understood benchmark that um, I can say, you know, I didn't take this number out of nowhere. Your elected officials have decided that the next morgue they build will be prepared for X amount of sea level rise. And that comes into play sometimes when you talk about things like Florida Power and Light's nuclear power plant down here, which is not planning on that much sea level rise. They're planning on far, far, far less. And it's easier rather than saying the Miami Herald interviewed 27 scientists who all think it's too low. You can say it's below the standard that every local government in the area is agreeing to build to, which really makes it much more powerful. And other climate compacts have sprung up around the state. Tampa's got one. The West Coast has one. Central Florida has a couple. And they're all in the process of setting their own like local sea level rise standards that they think everyone should adhere to, which I hope they get that done fast because that definitely makes the reporter's life easier. It doesn't come off as biased if you're just quoting what the government's doing. You know, I wasn't aware of that. And, you know, that is very helpful. I mean, I'm, I bet if you talk to some scientists, they would say it's too conservative. But you as a, a reporter, as the, the media, you have to go on something and you're not there employing your own sea level rise scientists. Maybe that's, you know, 10 years from now, but that's good. I mean, I think that's great that they do that. And I'm sure that's always going to probably be modified, but there, there has to be some sort of baseline that you guys work from. So that's great. They did that. They created an organized way to do that. Yeah, and they updated every five years too. So uh, in December of 2019, they updated it and it went up tremendously. So it stays with the current science too. Uh, did you know if we've talked about how Wanless, he's still at University of Miami, right? He is indeed. And he is on that committee and he is the reason that they have the extreme curve on our range oh, okay. of options you can choose. He has strong feelings about it. Yeah, but he signed off on even what they've got right now, right? It was it was a little bit political, but yes, he uh, he did eventually sign off. Uh, although he did ask that they include the much higher realm because he, you know, and, and I talked to him for that story, and that's why I think it's important to talk to a range of scientists. Like you said, some think that's too conservative, some think that's too much, but it's nice to have that baseline and talk to the other scientists around and be able to inf- have an informed stance. So I I appreciate the whole wellness of the world. Yeah, I've been following him for you know decades now. <laughs> He's always adding two or three feet. It seems like, oh boy, I yep. back. Remember when he used to say three feet, and that was quaint. So that was <laughs> well. Let's go back to some of the stories that you've written. And one of them, and, and to be honest, please clear this up as like maybe confuse some of them. And the, the FEMA released a plan that talked about how to keep some of the flooding out of the city of Miami, and it requires a giant wall and right this is not something that's necessarily going to happen but these are all just sort of proposals and and plans that you guys need to start thinking about could you elaborate with the, the is it this 10 or 20 foot wall that's potentially a pr- part of the proposal yeah oh boy without talking your ear off about this which i could so like we were talking about earlier the return on investment is something that is really uh, a really salient point when it comes to talking about adaptation. And no one loves ROI better than the Army Corps of Engineers. So after the rounds of hurricanes in 2017 and 2018, the federal government funded a bunch of studies to come take a look at 
areas that were hit by hurricanes and say, okay, how can we prevent against storm surge? And yes, we're talking about storm surge plus sea level rise in the future, which is great. It's always nice to have that federal interest, that federal money, that research. And the idea is whenever you complete it, whatever solution the Corps prescribes, if it gets approved by Congress uh, and funded, there's a 65% federal match. So they'll pay for almost all of it, which is sort of just tantalizing to any local government because these are really expensive propositions. Although, like we talked about earlier, not that expensive compared to the idea of leaving it all to get destroyed. But so the Keys has one, Collier County has one, and Miami-Dade has one. And in Miami-Dade, the solution is elevating a ton of buildings and flood-proofing some critical infrastructure like hospitals and police stations and water treatment plants. But the signature piece of it, and the most controversial part, is that they think the best way to stop storm surge, not sea level rise, not hurricanes, just storm surge, is to build a giant wall. And this wall stretches for miles and miles along the coast, at some points going into Biscayne Bay, at some point going a couple of miles inland and making some neighborhoods on the outside of the wall and some neighborhoods on the inside of the wall. And at its highest, sort of in the downtown Brickell area, it, it is estimated to be around 20-something feet, and in some places as low as one foot. And then also having floodgates in the mouths of the rivers and the canals down here. And the Army Corps' math and, and modeling shows that if it does install this, it could prevent a tremendous amount of storm surge and save billions and billions and trillions of dollars of real estate and, and potentially lives down here. But it's controversial because nobody wants a 20-foot wall blocking their view of the bay, even if that bay will one day rise 30 feet up and come to get them at the at the hands of a Category 5 storm. So it's it's sort of a, a look that's what is the tragedies of tomorrow that we should be preventing versus what are you taking away from my quality of life today? And it's a tough say for a lot. It's a tough um, choice for a lot of people down here. And it doesn't seem like there's local support for that wall. Um, but we should have a an answer from our county over the summer, whether we're going to move forward with this project or whether we're going to stop and slow it down and try to come up with some other option instead. I can see real estate developers already monetizing this, though, if it happened. It's just like, all right, you're in a condo. That's the post wall view type thing, you know, they'll, they'll figure a way to monetize it if it happens. So in, in another part of that, and again, I'm probably mixing some things up. That was, I think, FEMA and the, the federal government was thinking about this, but then the city of Miami or Miami-Dade created this really ambitious proposal instead of that. And is it like one in the same where they're going to have dunes and mangroves and that they're using more kind of nature-based solutions to kind of prevent some of the flooding and storm surge? Now, does that have anything to do with sea level rise or that too is just focused on storm surge? So right now, the idea is to come up with an ant because there's a limited time where the Army Corps is here working on this draft and a limited time where we can like get the wording of this final report in so that it could potentially be funded by Congress. So right now, this focus is really on storm surge. And it's not a county-led idea. Technically, it was developers, actually, that submitted this idea, their own version. Um, they hired their own engineering firms to do the renderings and talk about the potential modeling, although obviously they didn't get as far as the Army Corps did because the Army Corps had three years to do it. And these engineers had like three weeks to do it. But the idea was supported by developers in downtown Miami and backed up by Miami-Dade County and some Miami politicians who all tried to, are, are working in the process right now of convincing the Army Corps to change its mind and say, okay, well, if we have to have a wall, what if it's only 10 feet instead of 20 and there is a dune also? And so, you know, it looks a little bit better, which is a huge issue for the downtown set. And it has some more um, nature-based solutions. It's, it's you know, the mangroves will slow a storm surge. They will um, clean the water. We've created a recreational area for boaters. Like there's, there's sort of the um, multiple benefits crowd here is saying like, we can do better than just a steel wall. 
So we'll see how that fight goes. Right now, they're still in the thick of it. But yeah, it was it was um, politicians and the resilience offices here have been really working with the Army Corps, trying to get them to be a little more flexible on what that could look like. And people with, I mean, developers have a huge investment and a huge stake in what the future of this city looks like, including the protections. Like they want to keep their investment safe if they're the kind of developer who holds onto it for 30 years and they want people to buy. And if people are scared of storm surge and they're scared of hurricanes, they're scared of sea level rise, they won't come and buy a $4 billion condo directly on the waterfront in downtown Miami. So it's a really pressing concern for a lot of real estate people down here. Okay, so another article you wrote, fantastic articles about septic tanks. You don't normally think, oh, septic <laughs> tanks are going to be so exciting and it's going to be so interesting. But in the context of sea level rise and flooding, it was great. And so you you were talking about how there are these ticking time bombs. There's like 120, 130,000 septic tanks and they're building more. And some of them are already kind of exploding, so to speak, in the ways that they impact Biscayne Bay, which is just this beautiful bay there, but it's having all sorts of pollution issues. And so I just want to say, as I was reading this, I'm pretty jaded. I'm a climate guy. So you're cynical about everything. I was getting so angry and it just reminded me how Florida is really run. And your article just, you know, every time like as city officials, even though they have good faith efforts, they want to solve these problems or just they kept okaying new septic permissions or you're supposed to, they're trying to convert these septics to go into the city system, the sewer system, like most rational large cities had decades ago. And yet they're still half-assed that, or they still come up with excuses not to require anyone. And so just in that context, maybe you want to elaborate a little bit more of what you were saying in that article. Yeah. So I, I think it's funny that you say, you know, you don't expect people like the septic tank story with the sexy one, but I will tell you, I've never gotten more emails in my professional career from anything I've ever written other than septic tanks. People care so much about their septic tanks, which is great. I'm always, as a reporter, thrilled when people care about what I write about. But it is funny that this is the climate issue that everybody in South Florida has a lot of opinions on. And it's because it's an important one. It's in, that's kind of what I try to write about is this is something that affects lots of people. Uh, You know, the idea of having a septic tank in your home is great. It's cheap until it isn't. It's better than paying that county $60 a month or whatever it is until it blows up and you are forced to trade out and join the join the city sewer line or whatever, which could be $10,000, $15,000. And the majority of people who live in South Florida do not have that in cash in their pocket ready to go. So what we have in South Florida and Miami-Dade specifically is, like you said, about 130,000 septic tanks that are still here right now. And like 10,000 of them flood regularly and fail regularly because the several feet of you know drainage area that they're supposed to have isn't there anymore. The sea uh, groundwater has risen so much that that little layer of salt water underneath the porous rock that is the bed of South Florida and the bed of Florida is full and it leaches right into your septic tank. And like you said, it wicks that away, takes it straight into Biscayne Bay and leads to high nutrients and fish kills and all sorts of gross stuff and lots and lots of um, swimming advisories. So it's a big problem for us here. And it's kind of intractable because politicians let it be that way. Uh, They had opportunities to solve it for decades. They knew it was a problem since like the 50s, which my article points out. And they continually kicked the can down the road. They said it was too expensive when it cost a million dollars, too expensive when it costs a billion dollars. And now it's three, four more billion dollars to fix, all because they didn't want to face the wrath of residents who were upset having to pay for it. Developers, by forcing them to all new construction has to connect to septic sewage instead of septic, which is an easy thing that most civilized cities and counties across the country did a long time ago, especially when they're facing environmental problems like we are down here with these septic tanks. So yeah, it's an equity issue because not everyone can pay for it. And it is a 
environmental issue and it, because of climate change raising groundwater levels, it's a climate issue now and it could lead to all sorts of problems. And it's something that the county has only just now started to address, but finding the money to address it really counts. At this point, they're just counting on the federal government to kind of come in and save the day. And the federal government is not really interested in doing that. So it's a tough spot for us down here. Well, as I was finishing reading and I was kind of comparing it to the previous article about these master plans and all these ambitious ways to deal with flooding and walls and such. And I thought to myself, they're doomed because if they, how much they kick the can on the issues of septic tanks, it's you guys can't even muster the, the government fortitude to deal with this issue, which is just so awful that how are they going to really make these other tough decisions? And again, it got me really angry. And it got me angry about the history of, Florida and you you're a Florida and you, you read the swamp right we everyone who's in mm-hmm. Florida has read the swamp and you're just you get angry as you just see all these bad decisions that have made and like you said Miami is supposed to be this serious big international city and they can't manage to put people on like a city sewer system they're just still building septic tanks I mean yeah. it's like sand it's limestone compared to the bedrock of other cities when you put in sewer they still took the cheap easy way out and put in septic tanks and again this issue of equity well there's you know lowering income people all over the the country and they still managed to get them on city sewer so anyway that was a bit of a rant but it just did uh, no I I like your rant because I you said something really interesting to me, which is, oh, we're doomed, which I love to talk about that because that's actually the number one thing anyone who's not from South Florida asks me when I tell them what I do. Like, oh, how doomed are you? And I love that question because in one sense, like you just said, yeah. Uh, but in many other senses, no, the engineering does exist. The science does exist. The technology, the policy to make it a lot more livable down here. Obviously, what Miami looks like in 2100 is not going to be what it looks like now. I would assume more gondolas, water taxis. But I think there will be some semblance of a city here in 50, 80 years. But the quality of life could stay pretty good for a lot of people, or it could go tumbling down the toilet. And if we've got the political leadership and the policies in place that we have for a lot of levels right now, then that could be an issue. Like The, the solutions are out there. The solutions are known. The science is clear. The engineering is affordable and doable. It's just the part that I like. I think people think the science is what dooms us. And I think it's not. I think it's the leadership. That's really the issue, not the science. Well, I, I totally agree. But leadership is still a thing. And it still has to happen to get these things done. And you have 130,000 ticking time bombs of little mini Superfund sites. And what you described in that article was a lack of leadership to deal with it, even when it was cheaper. So it's... Yeah. Anyway, I think there's all these aspirational things. When you look at these master plans and the city really thinking big and then the mundaneness of, okay, I I want a permit to build a house and I want to put in a septic tank. Well, you shouldn't really, but okay, here you go. That's basically what's happening, right? Yeah, it really is. And to this day, I wrote that article last year. New septic tanks are still being installed. And in some places across the county, they're being installed to make affordable housing cheaper rather than the extra hundreds of thousand dollars it'll cost to drag a sewer main out there on county land that the county is paying for. there And the argument is, oh, we want it to be more affordable for the people who live there. And that is a, a, a wonderful thing to want. But at the same time, are you screwing that population 30, 40, 50 years down the road by building an infrastructure that we know doesn't work, and we know will fail and will lead to even worse health and lifestyle problems for anyone who lives in those condos 50 years from now? It just seems like we have a lot of short-sighted thinking down here in Florida, a lot of build, 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 go, 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 and not a lot of stepping back and thinking, "Mm, how is that going to work in 30 years? 
Right. And, and, you know, if I was the federal government, be it EPA or FEMA, and you were saying that they're just not that enthusiastic about spending money on some of these things, I'd just be pointing to the septic issue and say, well, listen, take a real crack at that for five, 10 years and come back and ask for, for other money. Yeah. And that's sort of what I, I've heard whispered from political sources is like, well, the EPA, even under the former administration, under Donald Trump's administration, sort of was looking at Miami-Dade and said, well, you know, we'll maybe give you some money for some other stuff if we see you clean up your act first. Miami-Dade is still under a consent degree from 30, 40 years ago because they just pushed all their sewage directly into the ocean. No filtered, no nothing. And that is still an argument with the federal government over you know, how they clean that up. The federal government still requires regular progress reports from Miami-Dade on how it's going to stop dumping sewage in the ocean. So thinking about like how is the county going to develop a long-term multi-billion dollar plan to get itself off septic tanks, that feels like that's an extra level that the county is not ready to tackle yet, even though it should have been ready to tackle it 50 years ago. Okay, I want to pivot a little bit here. And just again, back to just covering this as a climate change reporter, this is still a relatively new topic. It's an emerging topic. How do you kind of feel that you're covering it well? I mean, just your own personal, you you write great stories, but then there's this broader context of like, okay, well, globally, what is Miami doing even pointless because we're not going to get the emission issue under control. And so you've got to always, I'm sure, remind yourself, you're grounding, you're telling these local stories, but how's it been just covering it? <laughs> um, hard question to answer. So I, I try to like look at the patch of ground directly in front of me, right? Like how can, what is the greatest good a story of mine could do? And if that's someone showing up at a, a county government meeting and saying, I really think you should ask for, you should build to a higher sea level rise standard, or hey, you shouldn't raise the taxes on this neighborhood, or hey, you should raise this tax to afford all these new stormwater pumps you want to build, whatever. If it's something that I can that can motivate someone down here to advocate for change or ask for change or get involved in the conversation. That to me is a win. I don't think that there is an article I could write that someone at the UN is going to read and say, Oh my God, we need a stricter climate change like agreement between all these nations. Like I, I have my eyes on the ground directly in front of me. I got my blinders on. I'm here to talk to people from South Florida. I'm here to talk to about Florida. There's lots of wonderful, incredible international journalists doing the work of how does the, globe get around to fixing this and how do we all change it but i try to like stick more local because i also think it can get overwhelming if you really broaden the focus out and i think people don't like what everyone down here talks about the doom and gloom and if you focus on solutions you focus on action and advocacy and things that you can do to change the situation that's a more fruitful style of um of reporting and writing and also when i write more international stories nobody reads them <laughs> so that guides my decision making too and you're your editor i'm sure too it's like all right alex uh, let's go we back are to a for-profit business yeah <laughs> I'm curious about the environmental community there. And it's in some ways it's splintering on the issue of climate change. And, you know, even being like an adaptation group in there, they're emerging in, in Miami. I always see them. It's really kind of cool. How does that work as a reporter that, you, you know, the, it, let's say you're dealing with climate justice, climate equity. They might have very different priorities when you talk about these plans that the FEMA might be doing. Then you might have more conservation oriented groups that, well, how does this affect the wildlife and the bird population? Have do you feel like they're monolithic or is the environmental community really quite diverse there as a climate topic? 
The climate and environmental community here in the advocacy world is pretty small. I find myself calling like the same three people, and oh, I've nice. tried very hard to broaden that. But really, when you get people who are well versed on local issues, there's a handful of people, a handful of groups, which is disappointing. I know other cities have more robust advocacy and philanthropy groups around this sort of stuff. So I wish we had more of that. But there is a splinter. I mean, it's not a very outrageous splinter, like you mentioned earlier, actually, what you just said. Um, when it comes to the Back Bay and building maybe a dune in Biscayne Bay, the Back Bay study that the Army Corps is doing to perfect, protect South Florida from storm surge, the wall is not popular with anybody. But the dune and wall combination is slightly more popular among some of the climate groups because they say, OK, you're getting your nature based solutions. You're getting something that allows people to have access to the outdoors and you're offering protection. This is more like it. But then you have the strictly like the opposite of climate hawks, environmentalists who are saying, nope, don't put anything in Biscayne Bay. You're going to ruin the seagrass, which is also a carbon sink. And that has been a bit of a fight. And the other thing that the other fracture line down here is over nuclear. Obviously, if you are interested only in cutting emissions, you probably support nuclear, which we have the oldest nuclear power plant in the nation down here that is in interesting shape. And is a really big source of attention for environmentalists down here. They have a lot of feelings about it. They want to shut it down. But I've yet to see really, uh, there's a little bit of a fracture there. There are some people in the community who are like, well, you know, it's a necessary evil for now because it's better to not have any carbon emissions. And it runs most of the power for us down here. And if you got rid of it, the only thing you could replace it with right this minute is natural gas. And that's obviously a worse choice. So that's maybe those are the two hairline fractures I see in the community down here. But it's it's kind of too small to have many of those fights. It's really like 15, yeah. 20 people. And so it gets kind of personal if they have any disagreements. All right. You're listening in Miami. Ramp up your efforts, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah, I know that you focus more on in, in your local beat, but obviously there's some statewide issues that are uh, relevant to what you're doing. Could you maybe give a little bit of background? And there's a resilience trust fund. And then I think in some recent legislation, there's talk of a state resilience plan. Yeah. So that's been one of the most interesting things about covering climate change here is um, obviously under Governor Rick Scott a few years ago, you were a lot of reporting showed that you were banned from using the word climate change, something I've heard sources confirm to me when you were asking for grant money or working through the state. Um, so there wasn't a lot of money out there for this sort of stuff. And under Governor Ron DeSantis, who has sort of you know, had some more environmentally friendly policies. He cares about algae. He doesn't take money from big sugar. He's, he's done a couple of those things. There's been a big push for a bipartisan look at adaptation, never mitigation. Mitigation is still like an illegal word to say with the Republicans who run Tallahassee, which is the capital of Florida, and on the governor's office. But adaptation has become something that um, Republicans in the state have been able to get their hands around, primarily because of the economic benefits of it, that return on investment has been proven. The jobs that it can develop, those are those are good talking points. And obviously, they've got constituents who don't like being flooded, and they would like a solution for that. So this has become a more a less taboo thing for Republicans in Florida to talk about. They don't super talk about the cause or, you know, why it's happening, but they do openly say sea level rise, they say flooding, they say adaptation. And so there is a push from the state house and also from the um, governor's office to push forward something called the Resilient Florida Trust Fund. Um, it's still in the process of being set up, but it would funnel a billion dollars in federal money and state budget money toward local governments to help them adapt. So help them build solar panels, help them build generators, raise their seawalls, do the things they need to. And there was a lot more money shoved into a program that's been around since the Rick Scott era, which is called the Resilient Florida Coastline Initiative, which gives local governments money to help them plan. 
So what is your vulnerability? What's going on? And that's been around for three to five years and it's been pretty successful. And there's also talk of maybe doing, and then it just passed in this legislation, a vulnerability plan statewide. So where are we at risk? Where do we need to spend the money? Who's in trouble? Um, and briefly under Governor Ron DeSantis, we had a chief resilience officer. So she came from DC and didn't really have the qualifications that they were listed when they asked for, but she stuck around for about six months and produced one report saying, yep, climate change, big issue, silver eyes, it's an issue. We need to come up with a solution. And then she dipped to join uh, Homeland Security under the Trump administration. So we, she was gone before we knew her, but um, we had her for a minute there. And that really, I think, was a signal of a, a sea change, pardon the pun, in the way Republicans in Florida have, have started to embrace this issue. Did they refill her position? They did not. Okay, there you go. That's how their, their attitude about the issue, right? So mm-hmm. that's, Listen, and I just want to go back. You'd mentioned Rick Scott. I just want to say... As a firsthand witness of all that, I had mentioned to you, I was I, basically the first climate change coordinator working for a state agency. When he came into power, we had done a lot of climate change stuff. And we heard directly for, coming out of the legislature, pull down your climate change stuff. This wasn't just wink, wink. This was like, okay, this is happening. There are staffers that are on the prowl of state government agency websites that are looking for it. I mean, it was a systematic way of scrubbing it. So it wasn't, you know, I I was there, I was in the middle of that and we really had to put our heads down and kind of go underground in it. So it was ugly. It was ugly. And I think it took him like six years before he, you know, okay, you guys can do the bare minimum. So I, I can't believe that wasn't more of a scandal. They, they still, the reason I, I couched it in that language is that uh, they still fight you if you put that in a story. His spokesperson will still call you and say, nope, we never banned it. You can't prove it. So that's why I couched the language, but I'm glad to have a first person uh, account of what happened. Oh, <laughs> I'll say it to his face. Yeah, that was dark times, very dark times. Okay, let's talk briefly about heat. So some exciting news in Miami is that we we think it's the first designated Chief heat officer, I forgot exactly what the name was, but heat doesn't extreme heat doesn't get enough attention in the climate change debate, and I'm guilty of not giving enough attention. But what's Miami doing? What what is this position that they created? Yeah, so uh, it is a chief heat officer. You got that right. It is with Miami Dade, not Miami though, which is great because it means it's a broader countywide look, and it's an interim position. They're trying to find the funding to make this position stick around, which feels emblematic of how we talk about heat versus flooding in the climate industry. But yeah, her. Her role, she was actually the chief resilience officer for the city of Miami most recently. Her name is Jane Gilbert. And her role and the role of whoever uh, follows her is going to be to how how can we build policy, build infrastructure to protect this city from heat? Something we all say we're used to, but we're not because extreme heat is a totally different animal. And how can we build cooling centers? How can we put shaded bus stops? How can we plant more trees? How can we you know, come up with policies to, to combat the health effects of extreme heat? We're kind of excited. It's interesting to see where this job is going to go and how she's going to answer it, but it's, it's still new for us down here, this focus on heat. There's actually an article that just came out I think it was Chris Favell talking about climate change is responsible for 40% of all heat deaths from twenty the last 20 years. They were able to sort of parse this out. Do you feel as a reporter covering the subject that you're able to give it enough attention? Because like sea level rise, how many people actually die of sea level rise in Miami? Probably not a lot, if any, but then people that might die of extreme heat, but they kind of get lost in the mortality. Is that associated with climate change? How does that come across to your plate? So I'm also, like you, guilty of not talking enough about extreme heat. Um, I've written about it in the health context. I've talked about cooling centers a little bit. And there's occasionally, I get stuck in the trap of only writing about things 
when there is something happening about that thing. So I know that there is some plans to build some resilience hubs in some of the more vulnerable neighborhoods around the county. That includes cooling centers, that includes solar panel and battery backup. So that is a good reminder for me to start calling some people about that story. But you're right. Sea level rise doesn't really kill a lot of people. Storm surge from hurricanes does. So that is a huge killer in the country. It's the number one death from, from hurricanes is storm surge. So that definitely plays a big role when you're talking about what is the deadliest effect of climate change? But heat is an undercover thing. It's, it's an issue that we often say, oh, well, you know, they died of kidney failure. They died of a heart attack. But was that kidney attack, kidney failure or heart attack influenced by extreme heat? That's definitely a part of the story. We don't do a good enough job of explaining. All right. Okay. We're both on it, right? So we need, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> we need to cover it more. Okay, I, I have to, to talk about this really quickly. Um, so what impact did that Rolling Stone article, Goodbye Miami, have on the discourse down in your neck of the woods? It's just this become this famous article. And I think it's going on maybe eight or nine years old, but it, it created a bit of a, <laughs> a lot of consternation down there. Jeff Goodell and that article lives rent-free in the brains of every politician in South Florida. <laughs> Boy, did that still haunt them. They talk about it all the time. It was a great, it was a great piece. And I, I know Jeff and I think he's a fabulous reporter. And I I call him about Miami stuff sometimes just to have someone to commiserate with. But it was a, it was a piece that pointed out something that like everybody knows now, everyone in the climate space knows now, which is how are you still building and still developing and still running these policies in Miami, one of the most vulnerable cities in the entire world, without you know, with with completely pretend, pretending that climate change isn't happening. And it was a slap in the face for a lot of politicians down here who had been sticking their heads in the sand about this issue or the limestone rock. And they were really upset by it. And they wanted to, quote unquote, change the narrative. So that's been something I hear a lot from business people, from politicians. We have to take control of the narrative. We have to change the narrative. And so they decided to pivot from completely ignoring the issue to talking about it in only solutions oriented ways. So you'll see this a lot in the real estate community. They went from telling me, I had, I had a source tell me three years ago that any indication that real estate prices were tumbling as or changing as a result of climate change was uh, fake news. And now they say, oh no, we're doing all this great stuff. We're building this wall. We're building these sea rocks, sea walls. We're um, installing these pumps. The city has got a plan. We've got it under control. And, but they still talk about that article and they still recognize the power of it because that kind of journalism is what leads people to not want to invest here. And investment is the blood that keeps the city running because we don't have an income tax in this state. You need development to make the engine go. And if development stops because buyers are scared, everything stops and you don't have money to run garbage trucks. So it is the, the nightmare that keeps politicians awake at night is, is what happens if people are scared to move here or live here or build here. So that article really has been one of the I think it's the most important piece of journalism South Florida has seen in like 10 years. It's just guiding. I had Jeff on the podcast. It's been a while since he's been on, but we talked a bit about that article and just him like even trying to talk to some of the people down there when he wrote the article at the time. It's just, it's hilarious. People's attitudes toward him and such. And so, yeah, phenomenal work. And yet it is interesting. It's almost worth its own article sort of saying it's the influence of that article, right? I mean, maybe someone's done that, but that, that would be interesting or Maybe Jeff will do a follow-up. On that note, who are some of your favorite climate-themed reporters? And they could be environmental reporters, but they do a lot of good climate coverage. Do you have some favorites? My eternal favorite is Chris Lavelle at the New York Times. Every time I have a thought of a story I'm interested in, <laughs> he has already published it. Or he publishes the next day. It's, it's uncanny. But no, I, I really like a lot of reporters. There are some fabulous people in uh, Louisiana doing some wonderful coverage with the 
New Orleans Times Picayune advocate, whatever the combination of newspaper names that is. I really like some people in the Carolinas who are doing fabulous work. And I think just at the Washington Post Climate Desk has been really incredible to watch them go. But yes, Chris Savelle is the one I have my wits for. <laughs> Yeah, I he you know he was at Bloomberg and I got a chance to talk to him when he was at Bloomberg and he was doing incredible work there but it just shows you when you elevate to different platforms and when he went to the New York Times I mean the quality of the work even escalated higher you know he was doing some amazing stuff and you're just like he's hitting some home runs it just seems like on every two weeks there's just some like oh my goodness this is all the chatter now so yeah he he's awesome but there's a lot of people that have entered the space now. So I'm, I'm excited to see, like, it's really become something everyone's staffing up on their desks. I've even seen, like, the Boston Globe is hiring local climate reporters now. Um, Report for America, which is a nonprofit fellowship for newsrooms across the country, has really started putting people in places in, in smaller local rural newsrooms that are just covering climate change. So I think there's been this really big upswell of energy in the last couple of years in media. Like, oh, this is something we should talk about and care about and cover, which is amazing to see. Well, I hope you serve as a model for that too. I mean, as we talked at the beginning, but just even smaller cities in Miami, but you know, like the Charlestons of the world, the Galvestons of the world that you truly are kind of dedicating staff and people to this beat because it's going to be so important to those communities. So um, you, you're, I think you're setting a great example. So certainly appreciate that. Well, thanks. Okay. Before we get to our final question of the podcast, Jesse Keenan, who's been on this podcast quite a bit, he's the one who put us in touch originally. And I just want to make a note before we wrap up here that you went to the University of Florida, right? I did. Yeah. So did I. And I'm a Florida Gator. I don't know how strongly you feel about the Gators, but Jesse is a bulldog. He's a Georgia bulldog. And I just want to make just give us both a chance to sort of say how they haven't elevated themselves to national title in college football since what, like 1981. <laughs> and I think both the, you and I need to maybe just remind Jesse, because he will listen to this episode. You know, is there anything you want to add to that? Sorry, Jesse, go Gators. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Final question I ask all my guests, if you could recommend one guest to come on the podcast, who would it be? Ooh, that is a really good question. I think I would recommend Zalala Matafris, who does a lot of work with Catalyst Miami down here um, in the climate justice space. And she is really doing the work to make sure that all of, as all these major plans are going around like crazy in Miami-Dade and the city of Miami, Miami Beach, that these big governments are taking equity into account. And they are thinking, well, how is this going to affect Black and brown communities, uh, low-income communities, homeless people. And she's really like, you know, attending all these budget meetings, listening in, holding people to account. And I really love watching her work for that sort of stuff. It's great. Okay, great. So you know or you could potentially put me in contact, right? I could very well. I'm sure she'd love to meet you. Alex, I love talking to reporters. It's just fun. I can just pepper you like, this is what I want to ask. And I can just, you know, you guys get to just talk to so many different people. It's always a treat to talk to reporters and appreciate what you're doing. And you're in my home state of Florida and keep up the, the good work. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Alex for coming on. I love talking to reporters. They are doing some of the most important work out there, creating awareness around all the issues associated with climate change. As you can see, Alex has her work cut out for her. I still shake my head thinking about the mundane issue of septic tanks and how the region is still refusing to address the broader problem. We didn't dig too much into it, but I would love to explore the tension that exists with local governments and the Florida state government, which is not taking adaptation seriously enough. Some of these Florida communities are really doing cutting-edge 
adaptation work and the state is lumbering along. Sure, the statewide resilience fund is a step in the right direction, but it's bigger than that in Florida. As Alex noted, there's no income tax in Florida and the state can't function without endless development and growth. It doesn't seem like state officials will make the tough decisions, so I think the inevitable challenges of rising seas will take the issue out of their hands. I hope I'm wrong. And every elected official should become very knowledgeable around the emerging topic of managed retreat. Every politician in Florida should be conversant in the issue and have an informed and thoughtful opinion. And you planners in the communities these elected officials represent, if they won't get educated on the issue, then you need to as part of your core job responsibilities. Today, managed retreat has been mainly in the realm of academia. That's quickly changing. I guarantee you in the years and decades ahead, it will dominate the discourse of local planning in Florida. Okay, definitely check out Alex's work in my show notes and let me hear if you have other great local adaptation media stories. All right, I want to thank Jesse Keenan for his contributions to this episode. Thanks, Jesse. I also want to thank some of my listeners, Stephanie Atkinson. Thanks for reaching out and sharing those conference resources. Very much appreciated. And Steve Walls, thanks for the feedback on the Adaptation University episode. Getting that information is critical in helping me know what influence the podcast is having. And don't forget to subscribe to the America Adapts newsletter. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate podcasts and share a few other adaptation-related goodies. In the show notes, there is a link to subscribe. And here's a call to action. Encourage your friends and colleagues to subscribe. All right, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring an episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. So for example, UCLA sponsored me to do several episodes around adaptation in California. At the time, I traveled on location to interview experts they wanted me to include as part of that episode. Usually these episodes have quite a few expert guests, so basically they're sponsoring an entire show to share their particular story. I've done with various groups like World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, University of Florida, and other nonprofits. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. Most projects have a communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. So I've been doing these remotely for the past year, but I've recently completed my vaccinations and I'm thinking of getting into travel again. Like many of you, going on location does provide great opportunities to capture unusual conversations that can be part of that episode. Email me at americadapts at gmail.com. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. We have some conversations in that Facebook community group and people share some of the work that they're doing. Definitely check it out. Just search for America Daps there. And I love hearing from you. I hear from people all the time and it's my way to understand who's listening out there and what kind of work that you do, how you respond to particular episodes. It's really the highlight of my week to hear from you. Take the time, look down, type out an email just saying who you are. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at americaadapts at gmail.com. Take the time, send me an email. And don't forget to check out the website at americadapts.org and stick around until the end of this episode to hear a promo from the sustainability podcast, Crazy Town. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time. We are now descending into crazy town. Work has become a luxury for those who still have a job. Protests against police brutality and systemic racism are spreading. Fires spread across three million hectares of Siberia. Crazy town, the pile of garbage that you never want to smell. If we're going to change the direction, the trajectory of this civilization, we're going to have to do things 
completely opposite of what we've been doing in the past, right? Channel your inner George Costanza. Whatever action you thought you were going to take, don't. Stop. Do the the opposite. Crazy Town, the podcast that's brave enough to face the truth. Playful enough to laugh about it. And even crazy enough to try something different. Please join us as we explore the mean streets of Crazy Town. Subscribe to Crazy Town on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nailed it.